we are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. This is Sophie Aldred, and I play Ace in Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the iffy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because, you know, magic, if, etc., my name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-at-all-iffy four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the really Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. There's also our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast our good friend all the way from Scotland, J.G. Macquarie. Hello, J.G. Hello. I got that right. And now you're not in Ireland or Wales or some horrible place like <laughs> No, I'm definitely in Scotland. <laughs> okay. Tony, we're going to get letters. Yeah, what do they say? There's no such thing as bad press? Yeah. Well, if you like what you're hearing, except, of course, if you're in Ireland or Wales right now, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in a special room with localized gravity that smells vaguely of roses. <laughs> Though how gravity can smell of roses, I have no idea. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air because there was a misplaced modifier there. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Milton Welling. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Ooh, I did that all in one breath. That's marvelous. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. At least you can if I remember to put the post up, which I only did yesterday. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7K M-A-S-P-R. In fact, we expect you to. 
we now begin a new season of the podcast, woohoo, with our discussion of Peter Davison's first story as the Fifth Doctor, as we discuss Christopher H. Bidmead's novelization of Castro Valva. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Castrovalve, adapted by Christopher H. Midby from a script that aired from 1482 to 1282, published by Target Books in March 1983. As of this recording in February of 2023, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 118 pages. You may have noticed something there. The dates. This is a four-parter, and yet the dates are January 4th to January 12th for the whole story. And that's intentional, as it turns out, because this was one of the seasons in which Doctor Who went bi-weekly. Yes, so instead of airing at its traditional Saturday tea time time slot, in order to compete with American show Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and I cannot believe I am saying that because I've done a video on Buck Rogers, and I know just how awful that show is compared to Doctor Who at this time, they decided to move it, and that's what they did. And they decided to do it twice a week because, and JG will correct me if I'm wrong here, but there were certain soap operas that were going out twice a week and they were doing well in the ratings. Am I right about that? That's correct. Yes. Yep. Okay. That's what I thought, because I know EastEnders eventually did that to great acclaim. But Doctor Who did it, and it helped with the ratings for a little bit. But, of course, it didn't continue past, I think, Davison's last season. I'm not quite sure about that. I'll find out. This was actually the fourth story to be filmed in season 19. The first story for The Fifth Doctor was originally going to be something called Project Zeta Sigma, written by John Flanagan and Andrew McCullough, who had written Meglos the season before, So it's just as well that story had so many impractical elements that it was abandoned with less than two months to go. And normally that would put the production team into a tizzy. John Nathan Turner, however, was fortunate that the BBC was worried about overexposing the public to their new leading man, Peter Davison, who was already the lead in a comedy series called Sink or Swim, which I've never watched. Since that show was airing in the fall, when Doctor Who would normally air, the Beeb decided to hold the new season over until January, and that gave the production team extra time. So although the story goes that JNT wanted Davison to do a few stories before doing his premiere to get comfortable in the role, in fact, I think John Nathan Turner himself said that a few times, that was never actually the case. It was just a happy accident. So by the time he does Castro Valva, Peter Davison is already settled comfortably into the role, allowing him to differentiate it from those moments when he does fairly decent impressions of William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton in the story. Former script editor Christopher H. Bidmead was asked back to write a follow-up to Legopolis, which he was not actually going to do originally, which is why this one also has an M.C. Escher-inspired storyline, though the actual print that corresponds to this story is the print called Relativity. And if you've ever seen that one, that's the one of a uh, cityscape that's almost like a square, and people were walking up and down the stairwells in it, but they're defying gravity. But Mm. again, Bidmead doing this story is more a happy accident than the result of decent forward planning, which almost never happens during the JNT era, to be honest. The casting of Peter Davison, however, while happy, was not accidental in the least. We didn't get to introduce our new Doctor last time, so let's take some time to do that right now. Peter Malcolm Gordon Moffat 
was born on April 13th, 1951. Early on, he'd wanted to train as a teacher, which I'm very happy about, or to work as a builder, which just sounds bizarre. But neither job worked out. And after taking an O-level in English language, he did a variety of odd jobs, including working as a mortuary attendant. So somewhere out there, there's somebody who is buried whose body was shipped to the morgue by the fifth doctor. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I don't think there's a joke in there, but it's just a weird thing. Eventually, he became a student at the Central School of Speech and Drama and began acting. It was at that point he chose the stage name Peter Davison, to avoid confusion with the director, Peter Moffat, with whom he'd eventually work on Doctor Who. Davison's first TV job was in sci-fi, as it turned out, in a 1975 episode of The Tomorrow People, in which he plays, well, it defies description what he plays in that episode. Let's just say that. It's better that you watch the horror that is that episode. In fact, it's even better if you can get hold of the Big Finish DVD of that story because Peter Davison actually joins the commentary for it, and he, as usual, is hilarious when he does commentaries. He did meet his second wife, the American actress Sandra Dickinson, on that shoot, and he eventually married her in 1978. Although they divorced in 1994, his daughter Georgia Moffat came out of that marriage, and she's gone on to fame, not only for playing the doctor's daughter, In the episode of the same name with David Tennant, she soon married David Tennant, meaning that the 10th Doctor married his daughter and has his fifth incarnation as his father-in-law. And as the song goes, I'm my own grandpa. Yeah, I've always felt kind of uncomfortable with that story since you told it to me. Really? Why? (laughs) They're not really related. I know, I know. It's just all too close to uh, be fun. Yeah, (laughs) but have you seen the British acting community? They're kind of a tight-knit bunch anyway. They all know each other. But anyway, the role that would propel Davison into stardom, however, was Tristan Farnan on the series All Creatures Great and Small, in which he began work in 1978. It was because of this role that JNT wanted him for Doctor Who, because JNT had worked on that show as a production unit manager, and for some reason had a photo of Davison in cricketing gear on his office wall because they'd done a cricketing match. Davison initially turned down the offer because he felt he was too young for the part, and at 29, he was indeed the youngest actor at that time to play the role until Matt Smith came along. He finally realized he couldn't bear the idea of someone else getting the part, so he finally accepted, and our lives are all a bit better for it. You'll also notice this is the first book that we have seen to have a photo cover, and this is probably the best one of them. Because as we'll see, the quality varies significantly from book to book to book. And before we have JG do the dramatic reading, which I would love for him to do, there are two Adric-related pieces of lore. Well, actually not Adric-related, but Matthew Waterhouse-related pieces of lore regarding this story. And JG already knows what both of them are, I imagine. Oh, sadly, yes. <laughs> but please do continue. <laughs> yes. When Matthew Waterhouse is suspended in the Master's Web, it's either because of the angle he's hanging at. Yeah, it's not that. It's not that. <laughs> you do know what he's going to say, apparently. I'm very curious. Yes. It may very well be because no one thought to give the poor boy an athletic cup, but he apparently has a direction a very visible erection for part of the scene. And no one noticed it 
at the time? Well, remember, I'm, what, I'm betting JNT did. Oh, I'm sure he did, and that's probably why he kept it in. I mean, there are unfortunately many rumors swirling around Matthew Waterhouse's casting that cast JNT's interest in him in not the best of lights, but. You would think that if Matthew Waterhouse had been cast because of some time on the casting couch, he would have said so in his autobiography. Mm. But, yeah. So, Adric sent a bondage play. Yes, apparently. <laughs> You'd think the network censors would notice that before it aired. Well, remember what production of Doctor Who was like at the time. They were pressed for time. They were pressed for money. And I'm sure they also couldn't see it quite so well on the screens at the time, even though obviously fans could. <laughs> because I guess we were looking. The other bit of related lore does not happen on screen, though if you have particularly keen hearing, apparently you can hear it, though I've been trying to hear it for ages and have never managed it. There was a party the night before location filming, and Matthew Waterhouse had way too much to drink. The next day he was incredibly hungover. So the final scenes of the story were filmed on location after Adric's been pulled out of the web and he's not feeling the best. He's looking the worst for wear. And that's not method acting. That's Matthew Waterhouse having a hangover. (laughs) And during the filming of one of the shots, Matthew Waterhouse ducks behind a tree and pukes while they're filming. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That could work with the events of the story. He's not feeling his best. Yeah, that's true. But TV Trope says you can actually hear this happening, but it's like, I don't think so. He certainly looks like he's about to, though, because the doctor also has them jogging back to the TARDIS, and it's like, oh, God, did someone put that in just to fuck with Matthew Waterhouse? No, it was in the script, but my God, that's just rude. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which one's ruder. Anyway. J.G., would you do us the honor of doing a dramatic reading for us? It would be my pleasure, as always. Still weak and confused after his fourth regeneration, the Doctor retreats to Castrovalva to recuperate, a rather generous interpretation of the first half of this book. But Castrovalva is not the haven of peace and tranquility the Doctor and his companions are seeking. Far from being able to rest quietly, the unsuspecting time travellers are caught up once again the evil machinations of the master. Only an act of supreme self-sacrifice will enable them to escape the maniacal lunacy of this renegade time lord. And by act of self-sacrifice, we mean someone who wasn't even in existence to begin with killing himself. But because of that blurb on the back, I was shocked when Adric made it through the story alive. Really? Yeah, I assumed it was going to be Adric. Oh. As soon as he's trussed up in a spider web, I assumed that... His would be the heroic self-sacrifice at the end. No, no, Adric is safe. It's hard to imagine Adric making some kind of noble act of self-sacrifice. It just doesn't seem in character at all. Isn't it? Yeah, it is odd because you can't imagine Adric ever giving up his life for anybody else. Unless he, you know, does so by accident or something. Much, much <clears> though <throat> we may wish it. <clears throat> yes, <laughs> our regular listeners who know the show well are probably understanding why there's so much clearing of throats, but we're going to keep it to ourselves for now. Let's talk about your first impressions of this book, shall we? Allison, when you first got this book, what was your first impression? Um, Like you said, photo cover. I'm not sure we've seen one of those at all before. And I think you described before the idea of the doctor being young and hot as a 21st century phenomenon that 
doctor, you should be a doddering old man. But this is the closest we've seen to a young hot doctor mm -hmm. um, with his sort of 80s unisex bangs and frost job. <laughs> but I've listened to a lot of these as on-tape narrations in the last couple of years. I wanted to make sure that I read this one because I do not know this doctor's voice and physical mannerisms at all. Mm. I'm not sure I've even seen a clip with this doctor. I think I've only seen still photos. You would be intimately familiar with it if you listen to the audiobook because Davison reads the audiobook. Right. So I wanted to actually see as a novelization if I got a sense of the character's physicality from this book. So I, I went in intentionally kind of blank to the new doctor. Hmm. Okay. And we'll have to see whether or not that works because I know that there are lots of people who say that the fifth doctor's character is kind of difficult to pin down, but I don't think so. I think it's just we compare him to the fourth doctor and we're like, what's going on here? But it's fine. Well, I liked that there was the explanation of the Aishers at the very beginning because the early 90s, there was sort of a resurgence of MC Aisher interest, especially among the teen group I was in because we were nerds. So I actually had uh, posters of Relativity and Belvedere hanging on my wall. Oh, yeah. 30 years ago. So I looked at Castra Velva, and it actually surprised me just now that you said Relativity was the relevant one because there's one cast called Castra Velva, and it's not the relevant image yeah, in this. It's so. not. It's not, which is strange because that particular print doesn't seem to have as much to do with the story as Relativity does. I apologize in advance if I say the word inside out several times. Well, that's fine. Like castrovalva, castrolava. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about a castrovalva man. Yes, exactly. Oh, the castrolava cake. <laughs> Interestingly, this is a side note, bit of trivia, which is a pun given what I'm about to say. Danny and I went to a friend's house last night and played Trivial Pursuit, and we were neck and neck winning. And the very last question that he won the game on was this artist created images such as relativity. And I was like, you son of a bitch. And sure enough, he got it because he knew I was working on this book. So yeah, MC Escher was the winning answer. It's just like being on Jeopardy, only with less money. Dalton, what was your first impression? <laughs> well, I do want to say that looking at the print for Castrovalva, it seems to depict what the city looked like from the outside. You know, kind oh. of talking about the city being yeah. on the cliff and thinking of Tegan and Nissa kind of have to climb up this rock wall. It makes sense, but then relativity is really what the basis of the inside of the city is. You're right. That's that's I didn't put that together. Oh, I do see it now. Yeah, right. it, it's there, but Kestrovalva is not something that you really think of when you think of MC Escher. It's not that typical kind of psychedelic magic eye kind of you know talking about recursion so i knew from the title and kind of where this was going to go but i don't know i didn't have as much fun with this one once i started reading it i did enjoy the cover and like allison said i'm not very familiar with peter davison's doctor i i've cheated and watched the five doctors story but i don't remember very much about it or his kind of take on the doctor. So yeah, I was kind of interested to see where this would go. Also with it being a regeneration story, those are always a little disorienting because the doctor's still trying to get a hold of who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think this one in particular 
spends most of the story with us not really getting a real sense of who the doctor is. I mean, you even talk about Davison doing convincing, was it Hartnell and Pertwee? Troughton. Troughton. So I definitely got that this doctor is kind of like a blank canvas that he still hasn't quite imprinted on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And JG, your first impression was probably around the same time as mine, but I'd like to find out how you first encountered this story and what you thought of it at the time, because you said this is your favorite regeneration story, right? Well, yeah, Legopolis and Castrovava is a kind of bookend, and I know it's not intentionally a trilogy or whatever with Keeper of Traken, but yeah, I do love it. And I encountered it in the wild, so I watched it when it went out in 1982. My first impressions of this book were formed in 1983. I still have my slightly tatty copy of Castrovava in front of me, which I bought in 1983, still faithfully with me all these years. But this book was also really kind of influential on me, both in terms of the TV show and in terms of the novelization, because it, it triggered a lifelong interest in Escher, who wasn't somebody I was aware of. I would have been nine when this was broadcast, so it wasn't, you know, particularly up in Dutch artists at that particular time. But <laughs> it, it did trigger like a lifelong interest in it, to the point where like I've been to Castrovalva in Italy. Oh, really? It's, it, yeah, it's, it's east of Rome. It's, it's maybe like an hour or two's drive outside of Rome. And it's a beautiful little village. It's really lovely. Um, I imagine there's sick to the back teeth of Doctor Who fans turning up as well as MC Escher fans <laughs> turning up. That must be the worst convergence of fandom in all of all time. You oh, know? No, no, it's a real place with a real history. Yeah, yeah, no, it exists. It's not going to fold in on itself if you walk away too quickly. <laughs> Unless you drink a lot. I also used to live in Amsterdam, so I actually own a series of four or five original M.C. Escher tiles. I I used to work in a building which was being converted, and they tore these tiles out. It was an absolute act of vandalism. And I picked some of them out of the trash, so I actually own some original M.C. Escher work. (laughs) And that, yeah, I I utterly adore Escher, and I've I've been to exhibitions and and all the rest of it. And and it's all down to Castrovalva, it's all down to Christopher Hamilton Bidmead. The whole reason I have an interest in it is from that. And I enjoy this novelization to pull us back to something that we're supposed to be vaguely talking about. (laughs) I don't know if it's quite as good as Legopolis, but I think it does a very good job of sort of representing. The TV show. I don't think it really goes above and beyond, but I think it's a fair representation of what we get on screen. I think that's probably my best and initial impression. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten if I ever knew that Castrovalva was a real place. I really hope, for their sakes, that the Doctor Who fans are not showing up in cosplay as the Castrovalvans because <laughs> those hats. Yes, that's one thing we do not have to see uh, in the book because their dress is not described because. Those costumes are ridiculous, but that's fine. <laughs> it, what what matter of ridiculous? Oh, God, where to start? Oh, I love them. I adore those costumes so much. They're not good, but I adore them. <laughs> They're very... Uh... <laughs> Distinctive? Yeah, well, that's one word for it. <laughs> Big hats, very almost diaphanous costumes, almost in pastels, and face makeup, so everyone looks just a little bit like they're trying to do drag and failing at it. They even have painted fingernails, which I personally love, but <laughs> it's very strange. And of course, you don't hear from a single female character at all. Oh, will we ever get to that? Um, <laughs> we are a. Uh... Compared to a lot of the other novelizations we've read that were published years after the original stories, sometimes you know, 20 years or more after the original stories when they were looking for material, you can tell that 
people who read this novelization are expected to already be thoroughly oriented to what's going on because you are absolutely dropped down in action and progress with extremely little explanation about what is going on and who is who and what has just happened before. So you can tell that it was definitely designed to be issued by people who had seen this story within the previous year or so. Yeah. With very little sympathy for future generations. Well, <laughs> it does have something of a recap, but not the sort of recap we would get from Terrence Dix, for instance. It is slipped in there because I was looking for it too, and I realized, oh, okay, that actually comes a little further along. So it's there, but it's not one of those, this was the mysterious traveler through time and space known as the Doctor. It's like, I'm not getting a Terrence Dix type of thing. We'll do that next time, as it turns out. We'll get the very first of his descriptions of Davison having a pleasant open face, which, who knows. Should we start with the sexism and then the... I almost said disembowelment of the sexism, the way that Bidmead circles back round to it and says, well, yes, we're well aware that this is sexist because Tegan's going to address it. I'll say that with one exception, everything in this novelization that I thought was kind of sloppy or something that I shouldn't think too much about to just sort of let wash over me that just seemed a little bit flat or done without a great deal of thought with the exception of one thing every single element like that the story circled back around to it and explained that it was not an accident yes and i'm not used to being in such good hands especially with terrence dicks who bless his heart is the me the mode and the median of all the novelizations we have read because there are so many of them but almost every time i thought well that's stupid but you know uh, i should just let it go it was never stupid. It was always relevant to the story. It was never just something thoughtlessly dashed off and not well edited. So I thought that about the women who move in sort of flock movements as well. Uh-huh. Every single thing about their description I thought paid off later on. Hmm. Interesting. None of it seemed thoughtless by the end. Okay. Just out of curiosity, what was the one thing that you thought was not circled back to? My problem is I'm an accountant now, as is what happens when you drop out of your history, M.A. So what he, the doctor was talking about this time otter method, the time lords of carefully calculating your assets and your liabilities. I'm like, so you're going to solve for your equity, right? <laughs> <laughs> he did not ever mention equity once. And I thought it was going to be like the ultimate payoff and things like that. And I was disappointed. And it's really my fault for being what I am. So. Well, I love the fact that he lists <laughs> as one of his assets his cricketing outfit. <laughs> yes. It is. He's quite fond of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For people who haven't read the book, what I was referring to is the fact that there's a new scene in the book where Tegan actually speaks out about the perceived sexism against the women of Castrovalva. And it is a lovely addition because it's like, that's exactly what Tegan should be doing. She did it on Legopolis. She's doing it here. So that's a lovely new addition. But of course, it doesn't really result to anything because the women are not real, nor are the men. No, it does result to something, I think. So things that seem weird about this society. We have some astonishing attire to go out scouting. We have scouts wearing tall masks with large ornamental feathers, kind of generally loud outfits, which seems absolutely absurd to go prowling out in the woods, (laughs) discreetly 
gathering intelligence. And it turns out that they are hunting as a sort of recreation exercise and cultural practice. Mm-hmm. And they don't actually know anything at all about scouting right. in any sort of military situation. And they don't seem very good at hiding from animals either. So that turned out to not be something silly, the attire of the scouts. It turned out to be an integral part of the story. Some of the scouts are given names. They're given sort of distinctive activities. I can't recall anywhere in the story that any one of the Castrovalvan women speaks individually. We're just told the women said this. The women said that. None of them have names. None of them have jobs distinct from the others. We see them do nothing but cyclical labor. Mm -hmm. They prepare the meal. They clean up after the meal. They pull books from the stacks. They reshelve books from the stacks. And I was amused by the idea there were some especially buff women library (laughs) clerks who (laughs) haul the books around as well. And, And they never behave individually. Mm -hmm. There are always is at least a small group of them as well. Like I said, almost bird-like, flock-like, group of insect-like. But their cyclical work just is one more clue that we're still dealing with this phenomenon of recursive activity and then the, the big reveal about the recursive occlusion. So when Tegan is applying her full interrogation about why in the world all the work is done by the women. And another thing is, it's not just all the work we see being done is done by the women. We never see the women do anything but work. We are told that society is full of great readers. We don't see them read. We don't see them eat. We only see them service the academic and recreational and cultural activities of the others. But it's a librarian whom we're originally led to believe will turn out to be our villain. I think it's Chardovan who says, do you know of any other way of structuring society? (laughs) The payoff is it's a society that is designed by the master. Yeah. Of course, it's hierarchical and you are also born to your place in the hierarchy. That's what the master would come up with. Yes. So it's just one more clue that this is not a naturally evolved society. It's not just a division of labor. It's a strict hierarchy of who labors versus who has recreation and intellectual life. It's just one more clue that it's something that the master designed as opposed to something that developed over a 1,500-year history that turns out to have been fictionalized. Yeah. And it does kind of pull together, doesn't it? I had not thought about that. You're absolutely right. Even though I think I did say somewhere in the notes, of course, the master is going to design a society where men are predominant and are the masters, essentially. Until, of course, he becomes a woman himself, in which case he's very on board with female rights. But it's in some ways almost the inverse of all the stories we've read where the doctor and companions visit some other planet and society. We have a similar structure where we have men who are officials, who are named characters, who have different kinds of places in society. And then there are just women sort of scuttling around doing things in the background. And that's just presented as, well, that's just society. Yeah. Universal. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely constructed. And I thought that was uh, a phenomenal payoff. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, and I'm going to include JG in this too, because I'm sure you remember your first memories of this story. Were you aware that the Potrieve was the master until the big reveal? I had a feeling you were going to ask me this question, and the honest answer is, I don't know. I think the answer is no. I don't think that I did realize that it was the master. 
But I'm so familiar with this story. Like you mentioned, like like this regeneration story is pretty much my favorite. And I'm mm-hmm. so invested in it now. It's very difficult to remember first seeing it when I was nine and thinking, oh, so that's the master. So that's kind of brilliant. But I think the show gets away with it on screen surprisingly well. You can pillory me if you disagree with this, but I think there's three occasions in Doctor Who where Anthony Ainley acts. And one of them... (laughs) Forwarding this recording. (laughs) One of them is Keeper of Trachem when he's playing Tremus. Yes. One of them is here when he's playing the Portrieve. And I think the last one is Survival Mm -hmm. when he's playing the Master. Yes. I think those are his three actual acting. Like, he, he performs... He's a really good panto villain, if that's what you want to call the master in this regeneration, which I think is fair. Mm-hmm. But acting is a bit of a stretch, for, <laughs> especially by the time you get to sort of King's Demons or whatever. It's just everything is just declaimed. It's barely acting. But I think he does act the character of the Portrieve really well in terms of the TV show. So the reveal isn't quite as kind of, oh, that's obviously the master in a silly wig, which will become such a, a cliche. I think he kind of gets away with it here. And I think the book does quite a good interpretation. It doesn't tip its hand. There isn't a lot of nudge, nudge, wink, wink going on. Mm -hmm. It just lets it stand. So when it's revealed in the TV show, it's kind of like, oh, now I see it. But when it's revealed in the book, I think it's a genuine twist. So I think the book does well sort of working that material. So that's a very long way of saying I don't know. But I'm pretty confident the show got away with it when I was but a wee laddie. Okay. I thought it was Shardovan with really? the master. Well, because he's a misogynist. <laughs> but, well, but he is the one behaving in a shifty way. Yeah. And then I did think it was weird when we're told that Nyssa is looking at the master's image and seeing, quote, the hated face of the man who killed her father. But isn't he wearing her father's face? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it looks very different than her father's face. But you wouldn't know that at all from this story, that there was any connection between her father and the master. I, I think the misdirection with Shardavan works much better on the page precisely because he is set up as that sinister alternative. And I, I think the performance on screen is really lovely. It's a gorgeous performance. It's Derek Waring that plays Shardavan in the episode, and it's a gorgeous performance. But there are kind of depths to it. They, there, there are hints of sort of compassion and intelligence particularly which don't quite set up that misdirection as well. And I think one of the things the book does very effectively is allow the slightly more sinister aspect of Shardavan to come through. So I completely agree with you with the idea that you could see he was going to be the bad guy, Alison. I think that does come across well. Again, I think it's not coincidental. I think Christopher H. Bidmead is a very good writer when it comes to that kind of stuff. And he really delivers on that effectively as, as you know, an out-of-nowhere twist. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I saw the master as being any of these characters necessarily. I thought that they could be under his influence. Hmm. We keep getting these kind of shots of the master talking to Adric. Right. And we have the scenes of him with Adric in the web. So to me, it almost felt like he was maybe controlling. He he was, you know, the mastermind doing all these things. But these people seem to be under his control, not necessarily that he was one of the people in the city. Mm-hmm. That really was a surprise to me that, oh, shit, he really is the leader of all these people. And he's been here the whole time. Yeah. And it's really, really interesting because I think the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, it, it's him. Because you're right, JG, he actually is doing acting there. 
And the book sets it up really well, including giving us a point of view shot from the Portrieve. And usually you don't do that. <laughs> that would normally be a tip of the hand, but at that moment, he's looking out over Castrovalva with pride and with a sense of possessiveness. And it's like, of course he is. He created it. <laughs> so it actually is there if you go back and look, but it is so subtle, mm-hmm. which is really nice because the televised version kind of isn't as subtle. So it's actually the same actor in a wig. Oh, no, it's uh, more than just a wig because Anthony Ainley is doing the whole bit. He's got not only the wig, but the white beard and is in a bit of facial makeup. He's stooped over. He's doing some vocal old man acting that makes his voice sound very different than his usual voice. So does his name appear in the credits for those (laughs) episodes so that you have a pretty good idea what's going on when you're watching them? JG, (laughs) would you like to tell us? I, I, oh God, now you're really putting me in the spot. (laughs) If I'm not mistaken, I think he's just credited as the master in all four episodes, and I think it's left as that. I don't remember if the Petrieve has one of those tedious anagrams. I'm going to check that right now because now you've asked me a question. I can't answer yeah. it. I can't let that stand. So uh, <laughs> you guys talk amongst yourself for 25 minutes whilst I plod through the first episode. So I work out what the hell the answer to that question is. In a recent years, there are a couple of different TV shows where I have ruined a reveal like that by thinking that actually looks really familiar, looking up the IMDb for the show and then seeing the name of another character and finding out, oh, that's who that's going to turn out to be. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. I'm looking it up right now. And I think this may have been the first time that he got an alternate. Yeah, there it is. The portrait is listed in the credits as being played by Neil Toyne. Ah. An anagram of Anthony Ainley or Tony Ainley in this case. This is something that they think is so clever that they do it at least one more time. I won't tell you which story that is for because we have to have some surprises in our life. (laughs) But yeah, they did not do this, mainly because just like we had the TV Guide here, the Radio Times will run the listings ahead of time and give the cast list. Not the full cast list, but the main cast list. So the Portrieve had to be listed in there somehow. And certainly in the end credits, he's listed as that too. But yeah, it's one of those moments. I wonder if actors who had you know enough power to have a little more leverage in their contract negotiations started having written in that you have to spell their name left to right. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just have all the right letters and shake them up in a paper sack and spill them out as <laughs> something phonetic. I have a feeling if that were in a contract with any actor that JNT was interviewing, he probably said, no, next, and gone on to somebody else. <laughs> as far as the master's cunning plan Two of them, there are two plans, actually. One, to incinerate the TARDIS in the Big Bang. And two, to do whatever he's doing with Castrovalva. I have to admit, I honestly don't know what's going on there. Did the rest of y'all feel that way? <laughs> yes, it's just confusing. It's like, what's the point of this? Is he trying to just get the Doctor like stuck in a dream state, kind of? 
I don't know. Well, yeah, to trap him in the recursive environment that can't be escaped without the master releasing is what I thought. Like, oh. if he can't kill him, he'll trap him in a puzzle box, was what I thought. Okay. But does he really think that the doctor's not going to figure it out? My whole thing is, like, how did the master know that the doctor was going to be in such a poor state after regenerating? Mm -hmm. He's always, like, a little groggy, but this time particularly, he was, like, really out of it. Yeah. And so it's, like, how did the master know that how bad it was? Like, Well, there is a suggestion that that projection of Adric seems to be weakening him because there is that line where Adric walks away from the doctor when he's inside the TARDIS and the doctor kind of gets stronger again or feels a little bit more like his old self. So it could be something like that. But I think I have the answer to the question, what is the master doing with Castrovalva? Now, again, please feel free to disagree with me if you don't agree. But I think the answer is dicking about. I honestly think that's it. I I just think like he's got access to block transfer computation from Logopolis and he thought, fuck it, I'm going to build a town. And so he has. I don't really think that's kind of it. And then he's like, oh, maybe I can turn this into some weird kind of space time trap that will really, you know, mess up the doctor or whatever. But I think he's just dicking about. Mm-hmm. I recall it says he actually has been there for 500 years. Yes. But it's not It's not an mm-hmm. ancient civilization, but it is 500 years old. I like the idea that it's his, like, his side project yeah. or sort of a, a re- his retreat in the mountains where he goes and spends some time. Maybe the 500 years weren't consecutive, but he just, you know, comes and goes back to the same point in time. He left off from it and just, you know... I wonder that Bil- too. You know, builds new people and buildings and whatnot, and it's just you know a little hobby. So the master has created the Sims, like yes. a retreat center. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he spent five hundred years there total over the last several thousand. He just always go back. You know, he just unlocks the door to his vacation home. He loads his save, and he... <laughs> I, I, I honestly, Dalton, I think that's exactly what I, I think he's designed it like a computer program, and he just leaves it running. And he can drop in from time to time as as he fancies it, because the, otherwise the five hundred year thing is completely nonsensical, and that's a that yeah. would be a weird mistake for somebody like Christopher H. Bidmead to make. Mm-hmm. He's quite good on on those kind of details. So yeah, I really think it's just like he's messing about. He's decided to build this town. He's running it like a computer program, and like you were saying, Alison, like all the characters in it are pretty much programmatic the women follow these cyclical things but even everybody else they're only defined by what they do there's the master of physics there's the librarian there's you know these people that just do that one thing because they are just two-dimensional they're computer programs that's basically what they're reduced to and their entire personality is whatever their function is so they're npcs Mm -hmm. yeah exactly that okay Though my question would be then, has Adric been hanging in that web for 500 years with his, uh, well, hanging? <laughs> this is the one part of the story I found completely mystifying is exactly how he has made Adric into a broadcast transmission and reception device. Yeah. And this is the one part I did not get at all. I didn't understand what the scenario was. Yeah, And who was in control because we're told, actually the most frustrating print of the entire book is we're told at the end when Adric appears behind the dissolved unraveling tapestry. We see Adric hanging in his web, apparently really enjoying the experience, <laughs> what you've described. 
we're told that he's in a web that he only controls. And I'm like, what's the antecedent to the pronoun? Is he Adric or is he the doctor? And we're told that he only controls it because the master, earlier yeah. in the story, we have them wrestling for control. Mm -hmm. The master is about to free Adric. And he says, well, I can see by, you know, these wires arcing over here or something. You're receiving transmission of some kind of image and Adric's trying to conceal it from him. He's trying to sneak messages to Nyssa and Tegan. There's this wrestling for control of his abilities and he's never been shown as psychic before. Right. And it's unclear if there's something special about Adric himself and his mathematical abilities that facilitate this. We're told that he's somehow powering this phenomenon through his mathematical abilities, but we don't know what kind of calculations he would be making or why a teenage prize winner in a math concept would be better than a computer. I failed to grasp it. Yeah, that and how the master's voltages help him do that. I love seeing that word every single time. It's like, voltages? But my confidence was built up by the way that other seeming loose ends in the story were explained to the point where I'm quite willing to believe it's something that's explained that I just didn't get. Yeah. And I think probably the reason why that's standing out to us in such stark relief is the fact that the rest of the story is so solidly built. That, as you said, Bidmead has put this together very ornately and very solidly so that that one little thread of the web is not quite holding together quite as well. All I can think of is that Maybe the Portrieve NPC character is an embodiment of the Master who actually has been there for 500 years, but the Master himself is not because, spoiler alert, the Master escapes and we never find out how. I think it must be simply that, that the Portrieve is an NPC character, the Master that gets trapped in there is the NPC character, and the Master is probably safely away somewhere in his TARDIS where Adric is actually there for the grand finale, but not for most of the time. Yeah, it kind of falls apart a bit, doesn't it? But then why would the Master run for his TARDIS at the end of the fourth episode? That doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah. But I can't help with yes, please. with part of that because it, it it's something which is very... It's, it's rare with both of these stories, but it's something which is better explained in the TV version rather than the novelization. So the whole thing about block transfer computation, which is what allows Castrovalva to be created out of pure mathematics, is explained in Legopolis as something which requires a living mind. It's not something which can be run on computers. Okay. So Adric's right. mathematical skills okay. are, that's the whole thing about the Legopolitians, is that they are doing maths in spoken word rather than on computer, because apparently block transfer computation is too subtle for machines and it requires a living mind. I think that's the line. Mm. So the mm -hmm. master requires Adric to be able to do the calculations to power block transfer computation, which allows the creation of Castrovalva and all the characters within it. Oh. But because Adric is doing the maths, he is able to influence what's going on. So he can yeah. essentially mathematize these projections or he can try and fight back against the master. And that's the whole thing. That's why it requires Adric. That's why it requires a living mind. And that's a little bit clearer on screen than it is in the book. But I agree, Alison, like the thread of the way that that is explained in the book is missing. But that's what it is. Block transfer computation requires a living mind and the living mind the master has is Adrix. And I did not remember that at all about little Legopolis data, data processors. No, that's, and that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's the writer asking a lot of us. 
to just remember that. But no, you're right. That does make some a little bit too much on this case. I do agree. Absolutely. Also, too, like you said, for people that have not seen Legopolis or not familiar with that, that detail should be in there. Well, this goes back to my impression of being sort of thrown into the middle of the action and the Pharaoh's enclosure. And we're not really told what that is, that this was clearly published with the idea that there are people waiting in line when the bookstore opens who are enthusiasts who are waiting to read this and they're already very thoroughly oriented to what's going on and people after 1983 can hang from, from, from so a marketer's speak. perspective. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, the other thing to remember is we are starting to get to the point where Doctor Who is gradually being designed for people who can watch it again, almost entirely up to this point. It's been a one and done. If you're really lucky, you might get like the five faces of Doctor Who repeats. But generally speaking, Doctor Who isn't something which is accessible to the general public, except through the novelizations. But we're getting to the point where VHS releases are starting to become a thing. I think I'm correct in saying that the very first VHS release for Doctor Who was 1983. So it's mm-hmm. only one year after Legopolis, and it would have been the same year that this book was published. Now, that was uh, Revenge of the Cybermen, famously Tom Baker's story. But we are getting to the point where the idea that this will be a medium which can be accessed again is actively becoming part of the way that the show is designed. And so, yeah, it is too much of a reach, and it's definitely too much of a reach in the novel not to have that stuff about block transfer clarified. But the idea that Doctor Who is something which is accessible again is starting to come through into the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That's really early for tape release of television. I think of that era being almost exclusively movies being released on tape. Mm-hmm. And we will discuss as we go through the JNT era the positives and severe negatives of having someone like Ian Levine getting his grubby fingers all over Doctor Who continuity and saying, yeah, we need to do this for the fans. It's like, no, 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 we really don't. On a brighter note, what do we think of the Fifth Doctor's characterization? Because Allison is not familiar with his voice at all. Dalton's somewhat familiar, but doesn't remember it. JG and I are intimately familiar with it. What do you think of his characterization in this book? Do you have a sense of what this Doctor is like? No, I think the issue with me is that I don't get a sense of who this doctor really is, which, again, like I feel like is kind of part of what this story is about. But I have no idea what he's going to be like other than he enjoys this cricket getup that he's wearing. (laughs) True. Okay. There seems to be an interesting recurring phenomenon over the novelizations that we've read that the doctor is not overall, a character you're supposed to identify with. You identify with the companions. The Doctor is literally and figuratively alien, this older, wiser entity, except immediately approaching and following the regeneration Mm -hmm. when we're often invited into the Doctor's contemplations of mortality. Right. And so I thought in this story, instead of getting impression of what the Doctor looks like, sounds like, moves like, how he speaks to the companions and the other characters were invited to identify with his sense of disorientation, of being physically weak, puny, what he's physically experiencing. I thought it was 
pretty poignant with what he does and doesn't remember. Mm -hmm. That he remembers the ice warriors and the brigadiers at first was coming to. He barely remembers Adric. He does remember Adric's planet, Helm planet of Alcerius, but not that he's from there. He remembers Romana, but not that she left. And what actually weird to me was the biggest gut punch in the entire book is he sees Keegan and he calls her Vicky. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that instead of getting a sense of how the doctor physically is acts and sounds as perceived by others, we got more of a sense of how he feels as he is struggling to become whatever his new self will be. And I thought that worked. Yeah. It's a sense of weakness and frustration and then being able to triumph over that in some moments and then regressing again. And once again, this theme of recursions that he starts to pull himself together physically and mentally, and then something else happens. He loses a zero room. They take him out of his box, etc. But I thought it was good of them to call it by the way, the zero cabinet instead of the zero casket. <laughs> and then he sort of punched back down again, two steps forward, one step back. So I thought that worked. And my impression is that the next story is we'll get a sense of what he's usually like. But this time he's just kind of stumbling around trying to keep it together and stay alive mm. and remember who he is and figure out what the next physical step is as well as strategic. Right. I'm also quite happy that... <laughs> He refers to Tegan as that air hostess person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But yeah, he seems to go in and out of remembering who people are. Right. And that makes sense because he's just met Tegan. So obviously he's getting a sense of what she's like as a person. I also love the fact that the book at least ends on the note of Tegan still thinking that she's piloted the TARDIS down to Castor Valve and she <laughs> offers to drive. We don't get that on screen. In fact, we get an end line for Davison, which I think is probably one of the weakest end lines for a, a doctor ever in their first story. JG, what did you feel about the characterization of the fifth doctor? I think it works quite well. I like the idea of taking the doctor and, and actually giving us time to build up to who he is. It's the same thing that the Christmas Invasion does with David Tennant. You know, it takes a long time for the Doctor to actually appear. But when he does, you know, you get the full force. So you live with the absence so that when he arrives, you get the impact of it. I must be honest, I find the whole idea of kind of like regenerative trauma incredibly tedious. And I wish Doctor yes. Who would just drop it. But if you're going to have a story that does it, I think this probably does it as well as anyone the idea of the Doctor kind of drifting in and out of what he can and can't remember feels right. The idea that we finally get the emergence of the Fifth Doctor sort of towards the end as he manages to come to terms with the, the situation that he's in. And even though he's still, to some extent, incapacitated, he can kind of drive through it. He's able to, you know, rescue his companions and sort of escape. I think all that is very effective. And... Bidmead does a really good job of being able to capture the way that Davison does it on screen. It's not flashy. In fact, it's very much the opposite of flashy. A lot of the way that the Fifth Doctor is written, I think, is very understated. But we just get little moments, like the irritation he has about being woken in the Zero Room, or the way that he wants to try and connect with a librarian because books are important to him. All those kind of little moments are tiny little character beats, but they just start to kind of 
whittle out the character from the block of wood, if you like. You know, and I, I think Bidmead does that so very well. Yeah. Early on, there are a couple of statements from the voice of the narrator that I thought were interesting. I think departure from the previous for generations. Uh, we're told the doctor's new self had overlapped the old, watching and waiting for the moment of union. And then a little later, the Time Lords were able to rebuild themselves. And before we've seen regeneration as much more passive, something that happens mm -hmm. to him, yeah. as opposed to something that he participates in. This idea of rebuilding himself, I thought interesting, but then we don't see that as much throughout the rest of the story. We just see him struggling to survive it and recuperate rather than having had any kind of like conscious participation. I agree. And that is something I agree with, JG, too, that regeneration trauma is way overdone. Though I will give the new series credit for showing regeneration to be such a violent process that that trauma is almost justified. Back in the old days... Regeneration wasn't quite as traumatic, obviously, if you're just going to lie on the floor and have a crossfade go to the new actor playing you. That's not as traumatic, obviously. This is the first story to really hammer home regenerative trauma as being something that is lives-threatening. But there's one bit that captures the Davison Doctor really well as he will come to be. And it's that same sequence you were talking about, Allison, where he's enumerating his different positive traits. And it comes down to him realizing that the one thing that all of this comes down to is being able to handle things through blind panic. Mm -hmm. Blind panic really characterizes the fifth doctor. <laughs> that he does well in a crisis. Because well, right after he failed to solve for equity. So he's not good at math. He needs address. Yeah, precisely. And the fifth doctor is often characterized as the most vulnerable of the doctors. And I think that might be a little bit of a stretch. He's certainly a doctor who wears his vulnerabilities on his sleeve. He is not someone who is all wise, all seeing, all knowing in the same way that the first four doctors have been to various degrees. He's much closer to the second doctor in that regard. But even the second doctor has this feeling of being above it all and seeing around corners. The fifth doctor never does that. He's also described as the most human of the doctors. And yeah, you can kind of see that. Well, so Nyssa is later contemplating, but hopefully imminent downfall of the master and says or thinks that arrogance is a kind of blindness, an evil that is less than perfect, can be foiled, mm -hmm. something she says or thinks. Is this doctor going to be less arrogant than the fourth doctor? Oh, much more, much more. I, mean, I guess there's nowhere else to go, but decline. <laughs> yeah, every really, doctor is less arrogant really than the fourth doctor. Well, I don't know. The tenth doctor is probably the most arrogant of all of them, but yeah, he's definitely not going to have that streak in his personality to the point that when we get the sixth doctor, the sixth doctor is going to hypercorrect <laughs> and go completely the opposite direction, which personally I adore, but we'll get there when we get there. I want to mention one thing, which is actually kind of going back a little bit to what you were saying, Alison, about the female characters in the book. I really like the characterization of Nissa and Tegan in this book as a kind of contrast to that. 
whether it makes up for the sexism of the Christopher Robin Society or not is a, a separate question. But I really like the fact that Christopher H. Bidme takes the time to give them a distinctive worldview and then allow that to play out. One of the reasons that Tegan is one of my top three favourite companions from the classic series is because she reacts in the way that a person would rather than the way a TV character would. And I think we get a lot of that here. She gets frustrated. She doesn't understand stuff. Some stuff passes her by. She needs Nissa to explain something to her. And that annoys her, even though she understands the necessity of it. All that kind of stuff. I really like the way that Tegan is characterized here. Yes, she also gets the speech about equality and all that kind of stuff, which feels very consistent. And Nissa is slightly aloof here, which is, of course, appropriate enough. But again, she's given her moments. She's got the stuff with the wheelchair and the ion bonder. She's got her own kind of slightly prim, slightly proper way of addressing stuff, the way that she's contrasted against Adric, who's much more impulsive. I think the characters are really well drawn here but they're very lightly drawn they don't get like big and now here is my character kind of moment (laughs) hello terrence dicks but it's just something that sits very lightly within the text and i think bidmead does such a good job of bringing these two characters to life because they're very very different people but they don't just fall into kind of like generic companion traps yeah that's actually something that i thought was going to go a different way and then I absolutely agree that it went to this nice characterization because early on we're told that Tegan is an outdoor girl and I have in my notes you know so why does she want a career in a large passenger airliner uh, and then we're told later she loved any kind of technology as long as it was something to do with flying so I, I actually I should rephrase I actually thought the misogynistic society was terrific because it was portrayed as something that is created in the mind of a villain for his personal amusement as opposed to a natural social phenomenon but the women have no lines, no names, and move as like a flock or a school of fish or something animalistic like that. The men who are named have one profession that is also their entire persona. Mm-hmm. Both Nyssa and Tegan have past professions, but they're not their entire persona. Right. They have other interests, other experiences, and I thought it was a nice contrast. It's not like, oh, there are two women, so they have different flavors, the smart one and the sassy one or something like that. I agree. They behave much more like real people. If anyone's flat in a damsel in distress, it's Adric. Who is, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, no, seriously, who well, is not just a in brain in a web <laughs> and apparently a sexual arousal, and that's what we've got of him. <laughs> if anything, I thought maybe Bidney was patting himself on the back a little bit, saying, see what the master does? I don't do that stuff. <laughs> a little bit self-congratulatory. But no, I, I, well, and also I have some Terrence Dick sympathy in that a lot of times he's writing an adaptation years after the fact. People aren't necessarily reading all this in order. They might be reading in the order of publication he has to remind people who the characters are and sometimes introduce the characters for the first time and this is it seems like the screen has barely gone dark on the episode by the time this is published but he yeah does not just say this one's sassy this one's smart i I like that nissa is kind of the new romana Mm -hmm. in some ways not as knowledgeable but more fallible that works i thought yeah. And I think those characters do come out a lot better than than they will in later stories simply because when the doctor is asleep, you have to have strong companion characters who are driving the story. Same thing happens with David Tennant's stories, you said, JG. I mean, when we get him, we get him. <laughs> those last 10 to 15 minutes when we get David Tennant, we know exactly who this man is. Oh, man. Thinking of asking a lot of the reader something about Romana leaving with Birok. 
Oh, no yeah. explanation <laughs> about who either None. of those people yeah. are. <laughs> None. Yeah, mentioning that they're all just like, Meh. yep, nothing whatsoever. And yet, here Nissa and Tegan are given much more to do than they'll have later on. I'm thinking specifically about, and this is this is a story that otherwise is quite good, but the visitation has a tendency of just slotting the characters in and saying, oh, we need someone to be doing this. Okay, let's use this one. And not thinking about their particular skill sets or their particular personalities in the way that Bidby does, which is just lovely. How is the sequence on the screen of the doctor stripping off his clothes in a trail until he's left in apparently an unconventionally long shirt tail for yeah. modesty, speaking of the network sensors? He's not naked. Don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> it seemed very funny on the page. He never takes off his pants, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Besides, we have enough to look at when we have Adric in his pants. So in Adric's own pants. I mean, not in the doctor's pants. Good save. Oh, good Lord. That would be a story. Mm. Initially, when reading this, the first section of the book was so boring to me. So just, bleh, I didn't get where it was going. But then after getting to Castrovalva after seeing kind of how this city folds in on itself, seeing the parallel between that and the way that the inside of the TARDIS is represented in the first half was really interesting to me. Tegan basically marking her trail by leaving her lipstick mark on the wall, the doctor leaving a line of clothes and even unraveling his iconic scarf to be able to get back. You know, I really liked how the inside of the TARDIS is paralleled to what we get in Castrovalva and how disorienting it is. Oh yeah. Because that too is like a callback to Legopolis with Tegan running around in the TARDIS and being lost <laughs> right. again, which, you know, we always laugh about them basically running up and down corridors and how silly it is. But I thought that was really effective in this book. She says there's such thing as a surfeit of corridors. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably been me remarking upon the show itself, to be honest. Does mm-hmm. Tegan strike you as somebody who would use the word surfeit? No. Not. No. <laughs> like, it's a good concept. line, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have given it to Tegan. Yeah, that's definitely been made. That's definitely been made. I want to go to something that you said, Dalton, that you said the first part of the book was kind of a little boring to you compared to the second part. And for me, it was just the opposite. Mm-hmm. The first part delighted me because I was like, oh, good. We're staying in the TARDIS and we're doing more with that. And Bidmead's doing some good stuff with it. And as soon as they start tramping through the woods, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. because I really don't like the second half of the story, to be honest. But I'm thinking I don't like it because of the way it is depicted on screen, which can only be done with the visual effects of the time. Right. Whereas Bidney describes those bits where they're in the occlusion as really good, and you wish that his vision could have been better translated to the screen, but there was no way that was going to happen in 1982 on a BBC television show budget. It was just not going to happen. So there is that. There is a saving grace in that latter half. But yeah, I, I like the first part. I think my main issue with the, the beginning, and again, like after kind of talking to you guys and having a little more time with it to think about it, when I was reading it, it felt like there wasn't as much going on. It yeah. was very internal. It very much was just literally being like, the doctor needs to lay down and there's a specific room that he like really likes and it's going to be super good for him. And so to me, it felt really padded and very much like 
trying to draw it out, but, you know, looking back on it, it's like, no, it was really like giving us a lot of good character moments, kind of getting inside this disoriented feeling the doctor has, you know, seeing Tegan and Nyssa trying to figure out how to navigate the TARDIS, you know, we're getting bits and pieces with the master having Adric in the spider web. So to me, it felt like there wasn't a lot going on. So once we finally got to the second half, I was like, okay, here's going to be like some, hopefully some conflict resolution. We're going to get some more characters that maybe will help expand this or give us like different perspective. But yeah, ultimately like the second half to me, it's just like, like I feel like happens with a lot of the stories we build up to like what we want to happen and then it happens and we're, it's just like snap and we're done. Yeah. That's probably, that's exactly the way I feel about the Christmas invasion. It's like, Oh, the doctor needs to lie down. Oh, he's up for a bit. Oh, he's back down again. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> We've all felt like that. <laughs> There's a, I shouldn't say a technical trick. There's a, very established technique that me deploys really well here. And I actually want to reread the story to see if he's doing what I think he's doing. That is the technique of mention input for more than one sense, not just what a scene looks like, what it sounds like, but put in something about smell, ambient sound, yeah. something about texture, even flavors or whatnot. And I don't remember if he does that in the Pharaoh's enclosure, because I remember that being much more about blocking out this action sequence. Mm -hmm. But in the TARDIS, there is a much more interesting description than usual of the sensory experience inside that goes beyond. It's bigger on the inside, but the scene where the lipstick dripping is the signal that the TARDIS is heating up. We have this growing sense of dread. We realize they are trapped in endless corridors that are heating up. It's this very effective deployment of claustrophobia and building tension. Before that, I thought that Bidmi was making fun of the costumers by spending so much time analyzing and criticizing the tailoring of the new costume. I thought you just didn't like it. But it was another way to sort of put in those bits about texture as well. And how, yes, it's an all sort of beige white outfit, but how it does and doesn't fit together. And then we get to Castrovelva. We have Tegan stepping out and breathing fresh air, hearing birds, oh, yeah. smelling things, and what ordinarily would be a prelude to disaster. Oh no, the girl is going to climb a tree by herself, and then it's fine. <laughs> and then Castrovalva, we have them descending in the countryside, descending down to the stream, everything's beautiful, and they we're told that there's a turning point. They realize later when it goes from birdsong and fresh air to mud and brambles and briars and whatnot. In Castrovalva, I think that stops entirely. So I think we have food, but we're not sure the specifics other than it's a pig. Oh, yeah. But we don't have some kind of luscious description right. of the banquet. We have a library, but not a very tactile description of the specific tomes other than the one that the doctor is examining. I love his paragraphs about basically the doctor doing textual criticism because he determines that this is a forgery. Yeah. But then when they leave at the end, when they actually leave the Castrovalva town and fortress and go back into the countryside, my impression is this is supposed to be a real naturally occurring planet. It's just yeah. the Castrovalva fortress and town that's the master's construction. They leave and their wildlife sounds again and their smells. Yes. And I think it's in retrospect, that's the big clue that they are in some kind of 
not naturally occurring town as they stop getting those sensory inputs, but they don't notice Ooh, it and we don't notice it that until is it appears again in the natural surroundings of the planet. And I think you're right about that, Allison, because at one point the doctor actually brings one of the books up and I think he sniffs it, but we're not told he gets a smell out of it. Yeah, just that that's his technique, which is to look for watermarks, look for smells. Like I said, even before, or that applies some kind of textual criticism to determine something about the provenance of the copy that he's holding. Only in this case, it's not just a matter of whether the copy is authentic, but whether yes. or not the entire phenomenon is real. Yeah, we're not even told if there's dust on those volumes. And yeah, there should be. So in the early part in the TARDIS, I thought that it was a much more evocative TARDIS sequence than we've seen, mm -hmm. maybe ever. And maybe it's just me, but it's hard to do an engrossing portrayal of what's supposed to be a big sort of ambiently lit white box of shifting dimensions. Yeah, mm -hmm. It's hard to make that tactile. And I thought that with the temperature shifts, um, and the, the different trips on the same quarter, I thought that he did that. It's, it's still more real than Castrovelva is. If he planned it, that's amazing. If he didn't plan it, I'm still willing to give him credit for it because you're right. That is so subtle that you don't even notice it until it's pointed out. So my estimation of this book just went up a few degrees, just like the TARDIS. I've also had a lot of coffee and could be inventing things. Nah. I think it's there, and I think going back over it, you probably find it's hard to notice an absence, obviously, but yeah. But then he brings your attention to the reintroduction mm -hmm. of those ambient sensory inputs at the end. That's the reason I think it's intentional. Yeah, I think so too. I have one last thought. Actually, I have one last word, and that word is chuffing. Somehow, it never quite managed to come to replace wheezing groaning in the pantheon of words to describe the TARDIS dematerializing or materializing. And I hate it. I, it's so bad. Yeah. I, I love Christopher H. Bidmead as a writer. He only gets one more story after this, and this is pretty much the end of his meaningful contribution to Doctor Who, which I deeply regret. I wish he'd been much more involved, and I wish he'd written more and just I love him. I love his creativity. I love the way that he builds worlds out of ideas. I love almost everything about him. But if I had to find one criticism, mm -hmm. which I do, <laughs> describing the TARDIS as making a chuffing noise is exactly the criticism I am going to land on. Please don't do that. Uh, yeah. I had a problem with Ruther disappearing with a sucking sound. <laughs> Well, we've all been there. <laughs> if only momentarily, true. I, I would make a joke about Adric's hadron power being deadly to touch because I think that's, you know, probably a bit of dyslexia going on, but um, uh, sorry. The word that Bidmead really likes is giddy. Yeah. I think I eventually did a control F. I got a couple instances each of giddy giddiness and giddying and then i think he got out the ion bonder and constructed an adverb giddyingly, giddyingly. Which he might have coined i don't know if anyone's ever <laughs> built that one out before yeah. but there was one word in here that i found completely mystifying i think it's an ocr error but if so, I have no idea what word would have been there originally. Mm -hmm. And maybe there are meanings of this word that I do not understand. Let me find this. It was larva somewhere. 
ion bonder and Nissa gets out the ion bonder she has like keeps in two parts and she's using it to you know, cut and weld together the doors of the zero room into zero cabinet mm -hmm. all right so she's put the tool together the dull silver metal glowed in the wake of the instrument spluttering up little rivulets of larva as she moved it slowly from the top of the door to the bottom <laughs> okay i don't know what that means other than like grubs and maggots and whatnot what word is that supposed to be this tool spluttered up little rivulets of larva. Could it just oh. be lava? <laughs> just you, like molten metal? <laughs> Maybe. What, what page is that on? I'll look at it. I'll, I'll see if I can find it in the original text. I'm not sure, but if you're doing control F. No, no, I, I have the book. Yeah. What chapter is it in? I think six. Spluttering is the uh, unusual word in the sentence. Other than, you know, larva. No, no. Larva is the word in the book. L-A-R-V-A. Are you kidding? Yeah, that's what's in the original text. What in the <laughs> world is that supposed to be? Larva. It <laughs> actually is I don't think it that. means, like, juvenile insects. What? No. Oh, dear. Lava is the best guess. I've yeah, yeah, I totally thought it was a, a typo. And I was like, I'm just going to go with lava. <laughs> well, there were tons of typos in Legopolis. And one of the reviewers actually says there are fewer in this one, though they still exist. Yeah, there are a number. But usually it's easy to tell what they're supposed to be. I guess lava. I think so. I think that's that's Bidmead getting a little carried away, which he tends to do. I will say I appreciated the line Adric, who is still a little pallid after his long ordeal, threw himself down on the grass and stared up with gratitude at the open sky, which, of course, is Matthew Waterhouse throwing up upon the grass and then staring up in <laughs> gratitude at the open sky. Does everybody hate this guy? <sighs> like oh, yeah. the writers, the cast, everyone? <laughs> he's not yeah, well-liked. He's not a popular fellow, no. No, no, he's not. I like him for reasons that have nothing to do with his acting. <laughs> but, yeah, he... Um, as we'll see as we go on through our discussions of these books. Yes. Just two things for me is um, the trouble with generation is that you never quite know what you're going to get, which made me think regeneration is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> you really don't. And then we just had the cloister bell in Legopolis. And yet again, here we are with the cloister bell in this story again. But at least the cloister bell is still being used for wild catastrophe that mm -hmm. could destroy the TARDIS. It's not just a fire alarm, and it's yeah. not just a smoke detector, as it will be in later <laughs> stories. I think I have in my note, cloister bell's contract renewed for another season. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yes. As far as I know, I think we only hear the cloister bell... One more time in the classic series, is that right, JG? Do we? I think it's Resurrection of the Daleks. Oh, good question. Again, I'm getting. Oh, this is not on. I keep getting stumped. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to keep putting you on the spot, but I think that's the only other example I could. Yeah, it's because the only other one I would think of is maybe Frontiers, and I know it's not in Frontiers. It's not in front of us, no. No. It's definitely in Resurrection because Tegan recognizes it and knows that uh, Okay, fair And there it kind of works, but every time we hear it in the new series, it's basically just smoke detector. Except for one instance I think of. 
I thought there were very extra couple of very funny lines towards the end with the sort of hive mind Castrovalvan women. The women had gathered to pool their condolences and their curiosity. And then later they have all these questions about the doctor's state. Was his madness confirmed? Was he contagious? Was he dead yet? (laughs) And I thought that worked both as sort of the hive mind characterization, which I think ends with them sort of falling upon the master and the implication is they're going to have a go at tearing him apart, but also worked with us identifying with the new doctor. You know, he's asked, who are you? And he says, I'm not entirely sure. And then kind of his questions are also kind of, is my madness confirmed? Am I contagious? Am I dead yet? (laughs) We're going to need to see more of the actual doctor next time, but I enjoyed that take for this time. From both his perspective and other people's perspective of his confusion, but he has things to do and trying to pull it together and those things coming and going. Agreed. So, shall we go to Goodreads? I think so. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book review, simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may get your review read out loud here. And by the way, standing order to all of our listeners, if you do not see that I have posted the forum for a particular book, please email me. You will not be bothering me. It will honestly be that I have forgotten. Goodreads only allows me to post four at a time, and then it says, oh, you can't do anymore, and I have to be reminded. So, yeah. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.66, which is a slight dip from Bidmead's previous book. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three stars and says, I thought Castro Valvo is overambitious in terms of special effects when it was first broadcast. The collapsing world effect wasn't very convincing then and is even less convincing now. It's so much better in prose, especially if I convince myself to imagine the kind of effects in 2016's Doctor Strange movie are going on. The prose is better this time compared with Bidbead's last book, or the proofreading, at least. The Fifth Doctor's coat doesn't bellow, and we won't see a coat as loud as the one in Legopolis until the next regeneration. I didn't notice any other major blunders, and I sailed through this book as a result. I don't recall the Master's disguise being obvious on first viewing. I don't think it was, as we had only just become reacquainted with the character, and we're not yet expecting to see him in every other story, as with Delgado before him. Nevertheless, the prose version is an improvement, as I can at least pretend the disguise isn't as unconvincing as it became with multiple viewings. The only thing I missed was the hilarious sight of a hungover Matthew Waterhouse suddenly rushing out of shot before throwing up. Craig gives it three stars and says Castrovalva, which is a reference to a lithograph by M.C. Escher, is a novelization of the first script of the 19th season of Doctor Who and was the first adventure of the fifth iteration of The Doctor. Thank you for reminding us, Craig. We'd never have known. I need to scan through this because I have a feeling he's just telling us what's going on in the story, etc., 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 etc. I'm sorry, I should have edited this before we got here. Team, etc., etc. All right, don't go edit you later. <laughs> This is one of the stories where the special effects weren't very good on screen, but Bidmead's descriptions were quite effective, particularly on how Adric was fused to the Master's machine. <laughs> and his details of the mathematical geometries Adric produces in Castor Valva. 
I should have read that before putting it in. And finally, Daniel Kukwa gives it five stars and says, my favorite Christopher Bidmead novelization, which isn't surprising as one, it's my favorite Bidmead Doctor Who story, and two, it's one of the best Target novelizations, especially in the early 80s, a time when the books were on the cusp of transitioning into a new, deeper phase of quality writing. Keeping to the smallish word count of the time, Bidmead manages to fill the books with so much character development and so much evocative description that it verges on alchemy. Wonderful stuff. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? I'll give this one 3.5. I think I just, I did not really connect with this story very much while I was reading it. I didn't feel like there was a ton going on. I still feel like I don't know who this doctor is, which that's fine. It's my first story of his that I've read. Bidmead's writing is really good, though, just like Legopolis. Really well done on that front. So 3.5. Okay. And Allison? Yes. The big test is always what I remember with either delight or contemplation a few months after I've read one of these. So I guess it's possible that I won't remember this one at all. But right now it feels like I will and that it might actually join the ones that are that previously for me are Colony in Space and The Green Death and Scratchman, even though I know that Scratchman's not an aired story, it's an original novelization. So I'm feeling magnanimous. I'm going to go 3.75. Maybe I will regret that later, but there are a lot to love about this one. Maybe it just hit me at the right time, but... This may be an historic event because I think this is the first time Allison has rated a book higher than Dalton has. No, no, it's happened before, but it's has rare. It? Oh, okay. I'll have to go back through my notes and find out. And JG, what would you give this out of five stars? Four? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the question mark is purely for my own benefit, I can assure you, and will not be emblazoned <laughs> upon any articles of clothing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I It's very difficult for me to separate the actual prose of the book from everything else which is wrapped up amongst it. But I do think that there's a lot of really great little moments in this. Like I said before, it's not flashy. It's not particularly drawing attention, but it's quite subtle in some ways. And I love everything about Christopher H. Bidmead's style, the writing, the way that he builds worlds, the way that he deals with his characters. It's not quite perfect, but I think it's probably as good as it probably could be so yeah i think i'll i think i'll give it a four and then i'll spend the next three hours drinking wine and trying to justify that to myself <laughs> all right and as for me i'd agree with dalton it is a 3.5 for me it's more than a serviceable novelization it definitely captures the stories on screen it improves on it in some ways jg made reference to no question mark showing up on articles of clothing we do not get the question marks on his lapels, or his shirt collar, rather. We don't get those. And we don't get a mention of him putting a sprig of celery on his new costume, which indeed he does. <laughs> which is just... Oh. He does that in this episode? He does, yeah. That seems like a really important thing to leave out. It is. And Bidmead seems perfectly fine with mentioning that the Doctor basically sates his hunger with celery, which is another one of those subtle clues, Allison, that the food in Castrovalva obviously doesn't have much in the way of taste, so he finds even celery has more taste to it than it does. But what a thing to set up and not follow through on. I know, right? I know. 
but I think it's something Bibby didn't necessarily agree with necessarily making Wait, I'm going to from 3.75 to 3.72. No, no, no. You can't do that. <laughs> Too late. My students wouldn't allow me to do that. I'm not allowing you to. I do find it interesting though that the doctor says that he identifies more with the pig in situations like this, given the fact that he played the dish of the day in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the BBC version, which I always thought was bizarre because I couldn't recognize Davison's voice because Davison does impressions really well so of course he identifies with the dish of the day at the pig but yeah anyway what i was saying is this that it's perfectly serviceable there are a few new things in it i probably don't enjoy it as much as i should because i don't enjoy the story as much as i should and i like the first half better than the second half but there we go well thank you all mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get our first pleasant open-faced sandwich from Terrence Dix as we read his novelization of For the Doomsday. That'll make a lot more sense once we've read the actual book. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter. We are at DWTargetDC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. I want to thank J.G. McCory again and give him a chance to plug his new podcast, which is Talking Trek to You, where myself, an alleged expert, and my co-host Kev Kozar, a complete noob, go through the original Star Trek episode by episode. It's good fun. We have a guest on every week, and I can't help but notice that one of the guests that we've had on might indeed be on this very podcast. But it's been a real blast to do, and we love doing it. So uh, if you get a chance, please give us a listen. Talking Trek to you. And thank you for having me on again. This has been brilliant. Yes, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to guesting on Devil in the Dark, whenever that is going to be. Yes. All right. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Doctor Who Podcast Network.